This is Jewish Board Talk with Sharif Zephard, only on 101.9 High FM. From one mensch to another. This is the Mensch Thought Leader slot where Jody Ramsey, Project Manager of the Mensch Network, introduces their thought leader for the month. And this month, she's going to introduce us to Abigail Smith. Hi, Jody. Hi, Cherie. So lovely to be here again. I always look forward to our monthly catch-ups. Likewise. And tell us about Abigail. Well, Abigail's a new network member to mention. We came across her. She, she came onto one of our um, stakeholder engagement training sessions. And I've actually known Abigail since for, for quite for many, many years, but we hadn't reconnected. So we're thrilled to have her be a network member, especially in light of the work she's doing, which I'm going to let her talk all about. But just to remind everyone what Mensch is, Mensch um, supports a network of around 120 social change makers across South Africa. And we support them through a variety of ways, such as through active networking, through leadership and management training, profiling their work. Here is a perfect example, getting them onto FIFM, direct projects that we do with them on the ground. And also since, since the start of COVID, we've had the opportunity to manage fundraising and be a conduit for funding for, for many of our network members. So yeah, so exciting stuff. So Abigail, you are the Executive Director at Lifeline in the Western Cape, but your history in the NGO movement goes back, right way back when. Do you want to just tell us a little bit about your involvement in the NGO world? Thank you, Sharice, for having me, and uh, thank you, Jody, and to, hi to everybody listening. My entry into the NGO world was I was working in advertising, and I went to a, uh, a meeting at Kirstabosch Gardens in Cape Town, and it was the beginning of uh, when Woolies did their good food journey. So it was a collective of lots of NGOs that were in farming and produce and retail and uh, the World Wildlife Fund were my client at the time. I walked away from that meeting and I remember I went to my car and I sat there and I was like, I want to change what I do. And I remember I went online. A friend of mine at the time was at Oxford uh, doing her PhD in HIV and AIDS um, in the media in South Africa. And um, so I had a, re- a front row seat through her kind of in the HIV uh, AIDS struggles in South Africa and activism. And I went on to quite randomly went on to Biz Community and found a job um, with Community Media Trust. And it was a one year contract. And I applied for it. And I never, you know, if, if you've never worked in the nonprofit sector um, and you're used to kind of working in a corporate job and, and you walk into the NGO sector, it can be, it's a very different place to work. And I arrived there and I took this job and I managed projects in Mozambique and Lesotho. I was a project manager and a, a treatment literacy, uh, like a television producer, which I'd never done in my life, but the job taught me the job. Um, and I was kind of thrown into the front row seats of not only activism, but also you know, really looking at program development, program structure, monitoring and evaluation and kind of how to run a roots-based project that's going to uh, activate real change. And that was in 2007. That was kind of where that journey began. Yeah. And I've, I've been doing it. I've been doing it ever since. Abigail, you've worked with lots of different um, NGOs, um, you mentioned that one. I know you did Nali Bali. Do all NGOs experience the same difficulties or do different NGOs each have their own unique challenges? I think it depends where you are. So I think if one was in the United States or Canada or the UK, I mean, and I mentioned these countries because I've worked with uh, charities from these countries and NGOs from these countries. I think what you have um, in those particular countries is, is, is really strict corporate governance in the nonprofit sector. So 
in my experience, and we can take, um, I worked at Grassroots Soccer after I left Community Media Trust. Now that's a US-based uh, charity and it runs a very big intern program, mainly coming out of Ivy League universities. It also has its board members, its American board members have to pledge um, their own funds to the organization that become unrestricted funding. Um, and the majority of people at high level management are also out of Ivy League universities with business degrees, a lot of them kind of coming out of the Silicon Valleys. I mean, that's, I'm dating when I was there, but you know, the, and they're kind of taking a year or two off to, to, to give back. And so when I've worked at nonprofits in South Africa that are, have kind of roots in American or international um, charities, it has been quite different because there has been quite a bit of funding. So funding isn't necessarily um, the major issue, as well as that corporate governance tends to be there just a little bit, a little bit more. It's, it's more of a, I don't want to say professional atmosphere, because I don't think that there is a lack of professionalism in the nonprofit sector. It's just more similar to how you would imagine the for-profit sector in this country. So I've worked at some very big local NGOs, Nali Bali being one of them, and Nali Bali the, at the time we were the flagship of the DG Murray Trust, which I think is possibly one of the largest philanthropic trusts in South Africa. And it is an incredible, incredible, incredible trust. And it's, it's quite under the radar, but it is completely invested in South Africa, particularly nowadays um, in keeping children in school and providing enabling environments for first-time job seekers. And so they were our major funder um, at Nali Bali. And so we had guaranteed um, funding from them for millions. And so the struggles of the day weren't necessarily how do we keep the lights on? It was more kind of how do we go to scale? How do we make sure that our theory of change is working? How do we actually make sure that we're making an impact and making a difference? Where I've worked at much, much, much smaller kind of ma and pa type NGOs. And, you know, those struggles, Sharice, are very often how we're paying the rent next month. Um, how are we going to support our staff? A big one for me, and it's been a, it's been kind of on my my top list is how do you create an environment where people are volunteering, where people need employment, and then what often happens is people receive stipends for volunteer work, but actually those stipends then become salaries that are providing for a whole family, and so you you really are kind of grappling with what it is to be employed. I think the nonprofit sector is one of the largest employers in South Africa with no benefits. You know, the vast majority of us kind of are not able to give our staff any benefits. Um, so different challenges at different organizations. And I would say the, the biggest thing for me is really kind of, is it a local grassroots organization or is it a large organization with international funding roots? I mean, it's an important differentiation. We work, um, the Jewish Board works very closely with the Angel Network in distributing funds. And um, one of the things I found during COVID, if it wasn't for the NGOs, that many of them were established just specifically to, to help with um, feeding people during the COVID crisis. Many, many thousands upon thousands of South Africans possibly would have stopped. And I often wonder how sustainable these kinds of organizations are because government really doesn't pay much attention to them. So, I mean, I think, you know, to, and not to, and, and in absolutely no way to take away from a lot of those organizations during COVID who were feeding organizations. But at the time, I was at a small nonprofit who focused on non-communicable diseases. So we were part of a very small network of NGOs that dealt with non-communicable diseases. And unfortunately, what happened is that small sector was ravaged by COVID because funding just disappeared because it was, and, and I'm not saying that it shouldn't have been, and I'm not saying there's no judgment or better or worse, but what happened was funding had to be diverted to the greater need at the time. And that was feeding people, that was people needed to live. 
And so a lot of these smaller NGOs, they closed their doors. They had no choice but to close their doors. And at the time, I mean, we were on a daily hour-long Zoom conversations with, you know, taking to government, how do we try stay relevant during that COVID, that, that initial COVID time? For a lot of NGOs, their largest funders are departments of social development. I mean, I think that's a really important, important thing to bear in mind. Department of Social Development give most of their funding to nonprofits. Which is very encouraging because it's often the nonprofits that are delivering what government isn't. I have to say, in a way, it's limited resources and a lot of needs. Um, there are a lot of NGOs all doing very specific things, but there's limited resources to fund from. For me, if I had to restructure, I would say, you know, corporate should be funding NGOs or it should be part of our society where NGO work is encouraged and um, supported because this is the good work that is, I believe, carrying our country. I don't disagree with you. I think the problem is twofold in that. I think corporates want to fund what they want to fund, in my experience at least. So when I was at Nali Bali, one of a key partner of ours was you know, a newspaper company because it made sense that they would produce a supplement for us because future readers are going to read their newspaper and we were encouraging people to read in mother tongue languages. But that doesn't come with a blank check. You know, it, everybody everybody has to benefit somewhere. There's, and that's what I'm when I was saying about the unrestricted fund earlier. You know, the dream is that a funder comes to you and says, you know, here's a million rand, here's a million dollars. You know, we trust that the work you're going to do is going to have the impact it needs to have, that it's going to make the difference it needs to make. Um, but that is very, very rarely the case. And I'm not suggesting that it should be the case. I think people need to get what they need to get out of the money that they give. I think also, and I think this has changed what I'm about to say, but certainly when I started out 15 years ago, um, I used to, there was a CEO at, at Grassroots Soccer. Um, he now owns an ice cream shop, just for the record, but he was he made a lot of money in Silicon Valley. And he would say that, you know, South Africans can't spell philanthropy. Now, whether that was true or not, I think in the US particularly, there is a huge drive for philanthropic giving and a huge drive for like, after you finished your undergraduate, you if you were blessed enough to go study, that you would go and give a year back. And I think we're definitely seeing a shift in that. I know certainly as the years went on, more so I was approached so many times by Bat Mitzvah youth who wanted to do something for that special occasion. So I think we're definitely seeing a shift in that. And, and something like the Angel Network is a perfect example of um, an organic uh, needs-driven community organization that are that are doing the most incredible work and connecting people in, a, in just a brilliant way. We haven't yet spoken about Lifeline, which is where you are at the moment. Again, it's a very established NGO, Lifeline. It's something that kind of rolls easily for the tongue. Everybody knows it and the work that it does. Tell me a little bit about it. Lifeline Western Cape, I've been here for seven months now. Um, it's been here for over 50 years. It's an international organization. And I think, you know, for maybe some of your listeners, certainly I remember, you know, it was, was front of mind always for kind of a, a suicide helpline as well as a mental health helpline. Um, I think what a lot of people may not know is that a big, a big piece of what we do is training. So we do training in personal growth and counseling and facilitation courses. Um, it's actually an incredible process. I recently did the personal growth course myself. We don't tell people how to live their lives. We don't give people advice. Our belief is that everybody has the internal resources that they need to help themselves. We just being brave can be very lonely. And so it's creating that enabling, nurturing environment for people to come to decisions that they need to come to themselves and come to a healthier emotional and mental space themselves. But it's an incredible organization. We're in Kailicha and um, Mowbray. 
and we have a helpline, which is operated. It used to be 24 hours, but because of COVID and the restrictions put in place with movement, so it's a 12-hour helpline. We have somebody on shift all the time in those 12 hours. We also have in-counseling services. And for free of charge, people are able to come to us for up to four sessions with counseling. You know, the big thing for me around mental health is that I do believe, having worked in HIV um, and having worked in non-communicable diseases and education, I do believe that mental health is the next public health frontier in South Africa. I think it is a major differentiator um, between privileged and um, and not privileged. And I'm, I personally hope to see a transformation in terms of what community mental health looks like in this country. And, and that is my commitment while being at Lifeline. Again, so interesting because um, it's almost like a developmental program. You know, you talk about your need, you know, we need to feed people and then we need to make sure that they're healthy. And again, I often say this, if South Africa needs anything, it's social workers because we are a traumatized society and the trauma continues. And until we deal with it, the trauma is going to continue. We're going to brutalize our next generation if we don't ourselves escape the brutalization that we've experienced and we being South Africa and uh, you know it's encouraging that uh, that you do and organizations like that do the work that they do do and that there's a recognition now that mental health is as important as all those other needs and I hope I mean so, so to say we are not social workers on staff we are lay people who have explored our own personal growth we have counseling skills we have facilitation skills and we guide one another we guide one another into kind of that, that growth space of ourselves. And I hope that you're right, Cherise. I mean, I, I think we're all hoping that the recognition of mental health um, in South Africa and globally, especially because of COVID, leads to translates into funding for us. I think that's uh, having come out of the tears of COVID, having seen how, as I was mentioning, small NGOs have just been decimated um, with the funding crisis. I mean, everywhere, everyone's had to pull funding. It's uh, the Department of Social Development, for example, it just cuts everywhere. So we're really hoping that um, the recognition of mental health as just really devastating society in the way that it is, we're hoping that people recognize that and choose to support us as an organization and the work that we do. As a, a long-term newspaper reader, I see with the recent very tragic suicides by high-profile entertainers, that the conversation is starting to take place and people are saying we have to, we realize now this is a problem. We haven't spoken about it in the past, but now's the time. And I hope that that conversation is taking place, you know, in Kyalicha and Constantia. It's a real benchmark in what privilege is. I'm able to say, well, I'm in therapy and this is the time that I take and I need to, you know, self-care and all these buzzwords that everybody's using and, and I use them too. But you know, is a domestic worker who's traveling from Kailicha to Constantia every day, is she or he able to say that in their job? Is, is there a space in that employment situation where they can possibly say, I need to speak to somebody, I need support, this is what's going on, without being prejudiced against? Are they able to say that in their families? There's so many layers to it. And again, you know, South Africa has its own context um, that, we, that we, we can't just copy paste something that's happening internationally to us. Absolutely. Miguel, we have to leave it there, but I've enjoyed the conversation and um, yeah, let's keep it going. And, and this is kind of also where Menge comes in because networking amongst the various NGOs, so they're not competing, but rather helping each other and supporting each other and providing the skills that the ones don't have to, to, to compensate. So yeah, to both of you, thank you very much for joining me. Thank you so much, Sarita. Thank, thank you, you everyone for listening. That was Abigail Smith, the Executive Director at Lifeline in the Western Cape, and Jody Ramsey, the Manager and Director of Mensch Network.